Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by Captain Chris Sice, owner of Not The Real World. Chris guides for everything with fins from Central Virginia to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. Please join us as Chris shares his fishing journey. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review and rating in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. And a quick announcement. Our friend Blaine Chocolate has launched a new online tying class. He'll be teaching folks how to tie one of his new patterns, the GC Helgramite. You won't find this pattern in any book or magazine article. The class will be held live on February 6th at 2 p.m. Eastern, and all the details are in the show notes. Space is limited, so don't delay. Now, on to our interview. Well, Chris, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thanks so much, Marvin. I'm super happy to be here. Really appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Well, um, I'm going to have to say it's a large collection of them from growing up uh, on my best friend's farm, uh, basically, up in northern Virginia, and fishing in those farm ponds for bass and bluegill uh, over the years as kids, which we did probably every day or every other day of the summer um, growing up would be my would be my earliest fishing memories. Yeah, very neat. When did you get drawn to the dark side of fly fishing? Um, that would be uh, around age nine or ten, I think, is what my mother tells me. Uh, she was the one that first got me a fly fishing lesson, which um, was right around when A River Runs Through It came out. I think that was in 93, 94, 95, something like that, um, which would put it right in that time frame of nine or 10. I thought it was a little later than that, but she insists I was age like nine. Um, and got me a lesson and uh, with a gentleman named Hank Woolman up in Northern Virginia who has since passed away. Um, he only had one hand and was teaching fly fishing. It was pretty interesting, uh, but learned from him and uh, got addicted. And it's pretty much ruined my life since then. Yeah, there you go. So, you know, you've, um, I've known you in the industry for a long time. Who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your fly fishing journey and what do they teach you? Um, well, I guess, I guess Mr. Wolma was the one that got me started. Um, I would probably say the earliest person to mentor me was actually a guy who was one of my middle school teachers named Tom Thomas. Um, and he's a really big fly fisherman, lives out on the Chesapeake Bay, and just uh, was always there answering questions I had of it. I think he could tell I was probably really addicted to it. Um, got me into tying flies. He did some summer camps at uh, the middle school and high school I ended up going to. Um, and I really enjoyed going to those, and it just completely sucked me in. And I've kind of tied a bunch of different flies with him over the years. We still talk you know, almost weekly, um, about different fishing reports in different areas and whatnot. Um, but he's somebody that really, really just got me into it. Um, just, just from a different aspect of, of all the different types of fishing and, and all the basics and, and how cool fly tying is. Cause he is one heck of a good fly tire. Yeah. Interesting. So did your fly tying addiction come pretty quickly after you started fly fishing or did it take a while? No, it was all the same. Um, all the same time frame. Um, 
I don't know why I ended up getting a fly tying vice, but I did. Uh, right around when I started learning to fly, uh, you know, learning to fly fish, excuse me. Um, and I think it was just my parents are probably like, hey, like if you're fly fishing, you ought to try tying your own flies too. And uh, yeah, I just started from there, um, basically. Yeah. What was your first vice? Oh, gosh. Um, what are the names of those, like, wooden box ones? It's it's like a little, like, cheapo. It comes in a little, like, foldable wooden box. They're called, like, a Sunrise or something. They're, they're not very high quality whatsoever, but that was my first vice. Um, and uh, I wore the jaws out of that thing to where it wouldn't hold, hold hooks anymore. Um, they, they would just fall out basically. <laughs> so I, I really liked it qu- quickly or got into it quickly. Yeah. Do you remember the first fly you tied on it? That would be some type of a version of a border collie haired streamer, which I remember being a kid and pulling black and white hair off of the family border collie named Elmo and tying like really basic streamers on, you know, an old eagle claw hook or something like that that I used for catching bass and panfish. And for some reason, it sticks out in my mind that I used this bright red thread that my mother had for like sewing. And that's what I remember tying, tying close to the very beginning. And I don't have those flies anymore. I kind of wish I did. I don't know where they would be. They're probably got tossed out at some point or another. I've got a lot of, a lot of flies that I tied from years and years ago that my grandmother actually saved. She gave to me two years ago in a big box, which is kind of cool. But uh, those first ones are long gone, but they were tied out of border collie hair, which mind you, I still do tie flies out of dog hair, whether it's clients or my own. I still do that. And it works very well. <laughs> yeah. Very neat. And you know, you know, I know, I know you tie flies now professionally. I wouldn't, I don't know that I would say you're a production tire because my impression is you, you tie kind of larger, larger streamer flies mostly. Um, but you know, what was that transition from tying for yourself to tying for customers? Like, um, you know, it's, I don't think it wasn't particularly difficult for me to do so. I remember my, my mother owned a, owned a small garden store in Northern Virginia, and I ended up selling flies when I was young in my teens there that people purchased. Um, now it's much more so like try and make this fly swim the best it possibly can, uh, look as good as it possibly can, and try not to have any mistakes in it. Whereas if you look at my guide box or my personal box, it's like this thing should have feathers here and it doesn't, and this one should have hair here and it's torn up or, or ripped off or whatever it might be um, versus tying for, for, you know, someone that wants to pay you money, like you want it to look as good as possible. Um, I've just kind of grown into it just over the years, just tying for so long. Um, my tying skills have gotten better and better. I'm certainly nowhere near not a production tire, as you said. Uh, I like to tie streamers and, and a lot of redfish stuff. Um, and I'm certainly not nearly as good as a lot of these other guys out there. Um, in terms of just making it look so perfect, but, um, you don't really need it to look perfect. It just needs to look good. And, and 
half of that is, um, you know, even attracting the, you're attracting the client that wants to purchase it. If, if it looks good, they'll, they'll buy it. And, you know, if it swims right, it'll catch fish. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you have any tips you can share with our listeners that you maybe have learned that kind of, um, you know, kind of helped you up your game as you were kind of moving to tying for customers? Um, I would say, and this is kind of crazy uh, in terms of, I, I heard somebody else was doing this. I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard that one guy was counting his wraps. Now, I don't count my wraps, but using less thread to make a slimmer profiled fly in the underbody or whatever part of the fly it might be to just maximize the use of your wraps um, is important versus, you know, running up a big, like bulky head on it or something, making a smaller looking head on just a, a clouser, for instance, makes it look better. Um, so there's a, you know, a technique particularly that I think I, I saw in one of Gunnar Brammer posted somewhere along the way a couple of years ago about how he latches down his, uh, like bucktail to a, a, a hook using whatever thread he's using and it's make two loose wraps crank down and then make two tight wraps or essentially an X and make two or three more tight wraps further up the shank from whatever that material uh, is at the tie-in point and that should lock it in uh, pretty much anything and if you can do that you can save yourself a hassle of just cranking on, you know, thread over and over and over again and then having that bucktail still slide out. So um, it's something that I, I, I can put up on a YouTube video as uh, that exact technique. But if you can tie that um, and keep your thread wraps to a minimum, it'll make the fly look better overall and less bulky and just more streamlined. Yeah, interesting. I guess the theory there, right, is what you really want to do is you want to apply pressure along the shank, not at one spot on the shank over and over again. Yes. Yeah, totally. And and it's just utilizing the specific pressure properly on that material, say bucktail, for instance, since that's such a common material, to just truly lock it in. Um, because if you just kind of mound up the thread on top of itself, it's just not going to lock it down. But yeah, you're right. Moving it up the shank and you don't need a lot of thread wraps to do it if you do it correctly. Yeah. Interesting. And, you know, it's kind of funny because I guess it was, um, maybe it was last year at the Atlanta fly fishing show or maybe before I, you were, had started to get into the earring game. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, thanks. Uh, uh, funny that you said that just cause I got back from a, um, a women's, uh, clothing boutique here earlier this afternoon, uh, from tying earrings, uh, at it and selling a couple pairs for the Christmas season. But, um, I guess it was about a year and a half ago, a, a buddy of mine's fiance, uh, came to me and said, Hey, I have this feathered earring that I lost the other pair to it or other, the other one of the pair. And, uh, could you think you could make one of these? And I looked at it. It was literally like three pieces of, you know, just hackle. And I was like, yeah, I could tie that on a fishing hook and put it on an earring loop and, cut the hook off and there you go. And I did it and it looked like the other one and she was happy about it. Then I thought, well, let me make a few more that look like flies or look like just the feathers hanging down. And, um, she told me she paid a pretty hefty price for it. And that kind of caught my attention. Um, and I made a couple more of them and gave them to her and her family were like, 
her mom and her sister were like, these are awesome. And then she gave a couple more to her friends. And then suddenly I had a couple females asking me to make them earrings, which was unexpected and a bit unusual. And then I just started doing it and started selling them here and there randomly to, you know, friends, friends of friends and whomever. Um, got them stuck in a store in, in Percival, Virginia, where they started selling my aunt's store. Um, and I was like, okay, maybe I'm onto something here. Created an Instagram page and an actual business. And, uh, now I probably get as many earring orders as I do, um, fly orders. And it's a little easier to tie. It's a little, uh, quicker process. The money is a little bit better. Um, it's it's just something to, to add to the to the repertoire of uh, of different ways to make money for me here, um, and it's just kind of fun to a different way of tying. Just just fun to, to lay different feathers on top of each other to create a pattern. Not that needs to do something in the water, but just to catch someone's attention for whatever female is wearing it and whether or not it matches or dress or jacket or whatever it was today. Uh, it's just, it's just totally different. The one woman today came up to me and said, yeah, could you, could you tie one that matches this jacket? And it was like this weird cheetah print Brown thing. And I said, sure, let me, let me see what I can come up with. And she was, you know, all about it and paid me the money for them and wore them out of the store. So it's pretty cool. So it's just a, it's just a goofy thing. I've kind of fallen into and enjoyed doing. Yeah, that's neat. And so, you know, you started fishing at a pretty young age, got hooked on fly tying and fly fishing. When did you decide you wanted to be a fishing guide? Oh, man. Um, it was probably always in the back of my head ever since I was in my teens because I remember being in, like, high school and, you know, getting the question, what are you going to be when you grow up? And people would say, um, oh, you'll be a fishing guide. And I remember thinking, no, I'm not going to be a fishing guide. I, you know, that, that sounds corny. That sounds whatever. I'm going to be a, I don't know, a high-level executive in some fancy office makes a lot of money. I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, and, and eventually I fell into thinking I was going to be in the journalism world because um, I really liked sports and writing. Um, and so it was always kind of there in the back of my head that, that people thought I might be a guide, and I thought maybe, but probably not. But um, I guess I knew I was going to be a fishing guide when I got the first job being a fishing guide, uh, uh, interviewed for it. Um, and, and that's when I, you know, kind of knew that I was going to be one. What made me want to do it? Just me saying at that point, I think I should try and do this just to see if I can make any money at it, make it, make something out of it. If it, see if it's worth it or not. Um, there wasn't any one like pivotal moment other than the guy suggesting me that I go interview for this open position. And, uh, and I did and got it. Yeah. And so was that, you know, once you got that one position, have you been in the guide game ever since, or did you have to w kind of work and grind on a little bit to kind of break into the guide game? Um, I was immediately hired, uh, out in Colorado for, um, by Jared Hollinger at Aspen Outfitting Company. And I've technically been a guide ever since then, I guess. Um, it's been something that's not necessarily been like full time all the time. And I wouldn't know if I would still even call it full time. It's more like three quarters time. Um, but, uh, it's something that I, I've had to do, you know, other things on the side. But, um, 
Yeah, I've been doing it for guiding for, gosh, 12 years now, something like that. I think that was 2009 when I took that job. So, um, yeah, it was jump into it out in Colorado as a trout guide and, and been doing it ever since, kind of all over the place a little bit. Yeah, how long did you stay out west? I was out west off and on for parts of uh, about, let's see here. I did two summer seasons guiding out there. And then there were some several other winter seasons of, of me being a snowboard thought out there. But I guided two uh, summer seasons out there for Jared and Aspen Outfitting Company um, on the Roaring Fork River in Aspen, Colorado. Um, and then I came back east uh, after that. Got it. And who are some of the folks that have mentored you on your guide journey and what have they taught you? Oh gosh. Um, well, I would have to probably start out with, uh, Jared and his father, John, um, who ran, who ran Aspen Outfitting Company. Um, they, they showed the importance of, of high end customer service. And the operation they have is as five stars you can get, um, or I guess as Jared has, his father passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. Um, as Jared has out there, um, the high-end customer service is, is important, no matter, I think, what level of a guide. And by that, I mean, you know, showing them a good time. And they're all about, um, because their clientele is super, super, super high-end, um, out there you really need to be on top of it um but they're all on top of having all about uh making sure everybody's having a good time showing up on time um you know going the extra mile um to make sure that you get a positive you know feedback from your client have a good time that might not be the best fishing day but but that's super important to be able to um to be able to teach somebody to make sure they have a great time in the river, no matter what the conditions are, how many fish bite or whatever it is. Um, I, I, I learned that from, from him. Um, some of the other guides out there as well, were all about that. I mean, they're on his staff, so they're, they're well, well, uh, versed in that. Um, Mike Smith is another guy that's here in Virginia that has taught me, um, a little bit about the industry. He's been in it for a long time and he's been, he's been a great source of information. We've done some guiding together. I've worked for him for a couple uh, spring seasons down on the new. Uh, but so he's, he's always been super helpful to me. Um, first person to help me turn me on to uh, rowing a raft and, and drift boat. So uh, I can now do that. Thanks to him. And he helped, he helped me teach me a lot about the, uh, about the upper new, uh, which is an incredible spring smallmouth fishery um whereas i knew a lot more about the lower day just from uh, my time in college at blacksburg uh, but he's somebody who's, who's also certainly helped out a lot yeah and so you kind of you know distill all that experience and mentoring down you know what do you think's the secret to being a good guy oh um providing a great customer experience without a doubt has got to be number one um, with that comes communication and teaching. Um, if they're not having fun on the water, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not good for anybody. Um, you want to, you want them to have the best time possible and, and they might want to, might want to catch 150 fish a day and you need to, you know, have proper communication, explain, Hey, you know, this isn't like we're, 
you know, chucking worms at bluegills or anything like that. Um, this is a little bit different, so it might be more difficult. Um, and then with that comes the, the teaching aspect of it. Um, the, on top of it is often I'm taking out beginners. I have a lot of folks who are beginners, particularly here in, in Richmond. Um, and, you know, they want to learn what's fly fishing all about. And if you can teach them something, um, you've made their day and made their customer service uh, customer experience uh, a very positive one. And as I like to joke, um, I say that fly fishing has ruined my life and it's my job to make it ruin other people's lives so that they be, might become as addicted as I am or really get into it or join the sport. And if I can help people do that, um, I think I'm doing a pretty good job as a guide, I would hope. Uh, just this past couple of weeks ago, a, a, a newer client from this past summer took him and his 12-year-old son out uh, chasing redfish in shallow water in North Carolina and got his son his first red on fly. And you can tell the kid is just lit up, so excited. His dad's just super stoked. And now the kid's completely, completely addicted. And um, I think I think that's important to to show people your enthusiasm to get them into it and and teach them all you can yeah very neat and one thing i always like to do when i have guides on the podcast is to um ask them to share what they think the biggest misconception folks have about the life of a fishing guide oh it's it would definitely be that it's all fun and games and just fishing um I, if I meet somebody new and they ask what I do, I tell them I'm a fly fishing guide, and they go, well, that sounds really, really cool. Man, your life must be so hard, but, you know, whatever. And, and, oh, you just take people fishing all day. And there is so much more to it um, from uh, the aspects of preparation, of knowing what's going on, of having all your gear ready, um, to, you know, preparing Get, get the information out of your clients that you need, their experience level, what they're looking to do on the water. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, most of my most of my trips are somewhere around six hours or so, and oftentimes it's it's going to be ten hours overall the day, and you know, from driving back and forth, working on the boat, cleaning up gear, whatnot. So um, it's not all just fun and games of just taking people fishing because I'm not fishing and I refuse to fish my client unless they absolutely insist. Um, it's a lot harder of a mental game than, than it's made out to be of just going fishing. You're trying to figure out what's going on if something's not working or trying to teach the guy that just can't figure out to not bend his wrist. You're trying to find the different ways to get him to stop doing that so we can cast better or things of that nature. So, it's a lot tougher than just taking people fishing and thinking that life is a complete breeze. Um, the hardest part of it is probably owning a boat and a trailer. Uh, if you were to ask my father, he is tired of hearing me call him to uh, tell him that I'm stuck on the side of the road again with some, some breaking down because that happens all the time. And that has got to be one of the more frustrating things of being a fishing guide is, is the uh, trailer maintenance game. It's awful. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, too, you say that because, you know, it's one thing to have, you know, trailer problems out west because generally where people fish out there out of drift boats, there's a fair amount of guide traffic. So you probably are going to be OK because you're going to have friends. But, 
you know, the guide concentration obviously in central Virginia is not as high. And so, you know, the places you go, you could be on the side of the road for a pretty long time. Oh, oh, definitely. I've, I've got a, the, I've got it down to a science essentially of what I need to survive, uh, getting off the highway or the side of the road. If something breaks down, I mean, I carry spares of everything. I have two toolboxes. I carry my own jack because it's just happened so many times of, Wheel bearings is probably the biggest issue going out. Um, and if you're like me and you're driving over 25,000 miles out of the year and probably a third of that is towing my flats boat um, up and down the East Coast as far away as Florida or, or Louisiana, you're going to have breakdowns and that type of thing. So learning how to fix all that stuff yourself um, is super, super helpful. And yeah, you're right. It's Sometimes you kind of feel kind of stuck and abandoned like I've been abandoned overnight or, or felt abandoned overnight in, in a parking lot in Alabama till I get to the store the next day to buy the right part. So um, preparation is key in that. And it's, it's eventually if you own a boat with a trailer, uh, something's probably going to go wrong with that trailer and something's definitely going to go wrong with that boat at some point because they all just break down. Yeah, there you go. And, you know, it's interesting too, and, and we'll talk a little bit more a little bit later on about kind of, you know, where you guide and what you guide for in your guide season. But, you know, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is you you chase some pretty exotic stuff on the fly. I think you um, you fish for snakehead and you fish for bowfin. Tell us a little bit about that and why there's such an attractive target on the fly. Sure, yeah. Um, those, those are probably uh, fish that most people – you know, if they've heard of them and heard of fishing for them, they probably haven't fished for them. Um, I focus more on the bowfin, um, but there's a really good snakehead fishery in Virginia as well that I've caught several of them and gone for them numerous times and actually be probably doing a lot more of that uh, this upcoming year here. Um, one of my new friends in Richmond is an absolute uh, snakehead nut. It's all he likes to fish for. So we've been out a couple times, going to go some more. But, um, the snakeheads are an invasive species from Asia, and they're essentially the Asian cousin of the bowfin, which is an, a native species to the U.S., um, and they are as old as dinosaurs. They are super, super old. They breathe air. Um, they're so freaking tough, um, and they hit a fly incredibly hard. They will slam a fly, um, and they... Shake like if you if you get you get a, a dog riled up and you, you you know he's holding on to one end of a rope and you're holding on to another end they're shaking their head really bad that's how they fight um, I would guess that out of fifty percent of them that my clients hook or my I hook my my percentage might be a little bit higher but the, half of them probably come off of the bowfin um, they just have a super tough mouth they're super tough fish and they're so freaking cool. Um, and they're not very well respected, particularly by the by the conventional bass guys, because they they tear up their gear a lot. But it's just interesting to be able to catch a fish that's so um, you know so old. I mean, it's 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 as they're as old as dinosaurs are. The species is, and it's unusual. And it and the the river that I guide for them here on the uh, in Richmond or north of Richmond, we're sight casting fish up to eight pounds, and it's a twenty foot cast. So. Um, it's exciting as hell to be up there on that river floating down and, uh, and 
you know, middle of the summer, the hotter it is, the better they bite. Um, so they're fantastic. And the snakehead's just the invasive version of them that's been introduced probably 20, 25 years or so ago um, up in the Potomac, and they're making their way down through Virginia. And they act similar. They, they, they're they a lot of similar water. Um, they might be a little bit more picky, but they have absolutely voracious appetite as well. And they are reproducing like crazy. So guys can keep them. They taste delicious. Uh, the snakehead tastes a lot better than the bowfin, from what I understand. I'm not eating the bowfin, but I've eaten snakeheads, and they taste good. Um, and so you can go fish for these fish uh, in a typical like largemouth bass spot and now catch a 30-inch snakehead or bowfin, um, you know. And it's just uh, it's just another fishery that's kind of breaking open because it's, it's kind of an off-the-wall thing um, going for them. And we're lucky we've got it here uh, in Virginia, um, kind of all throughout the state. Yeah, neat. And so is it a topwater game or is it a streamer game? Oh, it's whatever you want it to be. I have thrown uh, – frogs are a, a, a true snakehead delight. Um, I've caught several snakehead on frog flies, Dalbert divers, that type of thing. Um, with the bowfin, I'm usually throwing more of a streamer. It's actually kind of like a big worm fly almost. Uh, a game changer would work exceptionally well for them. Um, it just depends on how you want to fish for them. Uh, they will both hit a top water. They love uh, things like spinner baits if you're going conventional fishing or chatter baits, something with a blade on it. But anything that can move the water well, um, they will hit. And luckily, both of them provide a great opportunity for sight casting. So I've caught them both on streamers. I've caught them both on top water. Um, they will knock a a top water uh, you know a frog fly out of the water both snakeheads and bowfin and i've even sight casted uh bowfin with smaller crayfish flies that are being particular picky um i've gotten them to eat some some like a ck uh, uh clawdad um they'll eat those too so they're not per- they're not particular when it comes to uh when it comes to food most of the time <laughs> Yeah, very neat. And, you know, one thing, too, that um, as I was doing my research for the interview, you know, really interesting. I mean, you guide basically fresh and salt, uh, boat and wade from central Virginia down to the North Carolina coast. And I was wondering if you could kind of share with our listeners a little bit about, you know, starting up on the Rivanna and kind of working your way south, kind of, you know, what you target, when you target it and all that kind of good stuff. Sure, absolutely. Um, well, I guess uh, being here in Central Virginia, I am lucky enough that I've got a variety of opportunity from smallmouth to uh, striped bass to the bowfin game, largemouth bass, catfish, gar, you name it. We've got a variety of things. So uh, because a lot of my clients are beginners, I would say probably 50% or so, um, I offer a couple different weight fishing trips around um Central Virginia within Drive Charlottesville or Richmond, where you go wade fishing, where I can teach these folks how to do the whole, you know, catching smaller sunfish and smaller um, uh, smallmouth, largemouth, things of that nature at different ponds and lakes, and then like the Rivanna or the North Anna, which is kind of what I call my beginner trips. A um, little bit more experienced trips or folks that really want to go for the bigger, more aggressive stuff. We'll do the bowfin game, um, which is up on the Mattapanai River. Uh, sometimes it also takes folks to uh, the Chickahominy Reservoir, 
um, which is uh, about 40 minutes east of Richmond. It's actually the northernmost cypress swamp in North America. Super, super cool, weird fishery that doesn't seem like you should be in Virginia. And it's awesome having those bowfin and bass in there. Um, and then, of course, about an hour and 15 minutes due east of me, I have the Chesapeake Bay, which is about where I run about half of my trips uh, out of my flats boat. Um, and we're chasing striped bass and uh, redfish or red drum, depending on where you're from, you want to call them. Um, flounder uh, occasionally and uh, speckled sea trout. Uh, it's mostly a striper or rockfish game, uh, but this past couple of years, uh, this past summer, excuse me, um, we had a, um, a great opportunity to catch a bunch of big sea trout um, and, a, and a good number of redfish. Um, so that that's a, a, a large chunk of my guide trips along with the Mattapanai, and then I sprinkle in the beginners, uh, you know, a, a fair amount uh, on those wave fishing trips. And then I do a lot of trips um, down in the outer banks of North Carolina, um, as well as uh, a, a, a several of them a year with a variety of clients, multiple clients, um, down around Cape Lookout, Moorhead City area, where we go chasing anything and everything in the salt down there. So you're talking um, specks, you're talking red drum, you're talking flounder. Uh, I've got some spots that we can pretty much, if they are there, uh, you know, guarantee a flounder on the fly. That's, that's pretty common if folks want to catch one, um, which surprises a lot of people, but they'll eat a, Chartreuse and white clouds are pretty readily as long as they're there and put in their face. Uh, do the false albacore game in the fall. Do a lot of guide trips that. I had a really busy season here this past, excuse me, this past fall for that, which lasted all the way through Thanksgiving. Um, big Spanish mackerel we can target, can target sharks, can target the bull drum and the noose. I've done that. Uh, take some folks out doing that. Um, do some dock light fishing down there. Uh, North Carolina's kind of got all of it uh, right there in terms of uh, the saltwater game, about four and a half hours in Richmond. So it's fantastic. I spend a, an incredible amount of time down there. And a lot of my clients up in Virginia will go down there for a long weekend and fish me for three or four days. Um, and I just, I just absolutely love it down there and, and love, uh, love all the fishing down there, particularly all the redfish. That's, that's my favorite. Yeah, I was going to say, we've talked a few times, and it seems like you've um, you've really gotten the redfish bug. Uh, they're firmly implanted in me, uh, so much so that I'm debating getting a redfish tattoo, which would be uh, maybe a questionable decision, maybe not, who knows. Uh, but uh, if, if there's one fish that I could just go chase, um, you know, in a moment's notice, um, it's them. And if I've got a couple days off and the weather is looking good down at, you know, uh, Oregon Inlet or down at Moorhead or something where the tides are right at the right time of the day and the, uh, the weather's looking good, the fishing's good. I mean, I'll just, I'll just hop in my truck, tow the boat down and either couch surf or sleep in my truck or camp or whatever it may be with wherever I'm at, whether or not I have a place to stay. Um, I just do it for two days. I'll make that eight, nine hour round trip um, just to just to be able to go chase redfish because they're so much fun. And you can catch them from, you know, Maryland all the way to Texas, all the way around the coast. Um, 
And I've done a lot of fishing for them down in South Carolina and a bunch of trips down for them in Louisiana. And I've caught a few in Florida. Um, there is no place like Louisiana for them, but um, it's especially in terms of sheer numbers and overall size. But North Carolina is super special to me. I've been going there my whole life uh, for family vacations and started targeting them probably, I don't know, eight or nine years ago um, out of kayaks with a fly rod and What's beautiful about North Carolina is it's a lot of grass flats and you can walk on them and you can go out in a kayak and it's easy access and the fish can get big up to 35 inches. I've caught 35 inches on the flats. I've caught them as small as 10 inches. You have a lot of fish in the slot size on these flats and it's gin clear water and you can see them swimming around. And, um, you know, you just, you just get a, get a, buggy looking crab fly in front of them and, and i say that 60 percent of the time they'll eat it all the time uh the other 40 percent is when they're starting to get weird or picky or something like that you got to switch it up and figure out what they're going to eat um getting it in front of them um is is a big part of the challenge in terms of figuring out where they're at covering water depending on whether you're wade fishing or if you're in a kayak or you're in a boat they all present their own benefits and challenges but um, it's an exceptional quarry that's, that's fairly read, readily accessible to a lot of people. Um, if you like to keep one here and there, they taste good, but, but they fight like hell and watching, just watching them eat a fly, eat a shrimp fly or a crab fly that you're swimming in front of them in clear water in North Carolina, the grass flats is just fantastic. You'll watch them open their mouth and actually suck it in. And that's a 30 inch fish. And, you know, on your seven or eight, and he's going to tow you around on the kayak. It's just, it, it raises the hackles on my arms just talking about it, thinking about it. Very neat. Is it that visual hunt that really kind of sucks you into the redfish game? Yeah, I absolutely love it. And it's why I like fishing for them in North Carolina the most, I think. And um, I love the tailors that you get in Louisiana and Georgia and South Carolina. They've got strong tailing games. Um, but the water is, you know, much dirtier. And so it's harder to see those fish cruising around. You can, you can in those areas as well. I'm not saying you can't, but middle of summer, it'll be the middle of June, July, August. And I can go to North Carolina and, and go sight cast to 25, 30 redfish on a good day. Um, and catch six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 of them. Um, as long as everything, you know, works out pretty well. Um, and it's just watching that visual eat where I can see that fish, you know, 40 feet away. You don't ever really have to make a cast longer than 40 feet. And as long as you lead in by a little bit or you, you understand their body language, um, what's going on with the wind, the tide, any of that thing, you know, any of that stuff, um, you'll, uh, you'll get to watch them eat that fly. And it's just so freaking cool. Um, it's so cool to watch them swim on the back of a ray. It's so cool to watch them, you know, pop a mullet that's not paying attention to where it's at. Uh, it's so cool to watch them slurp in a shrimp. Um, all these things that I've seen them do, um, you know, on the water while fishing for them. Um, half the time, I feel like I just enjoy spending the time being out there, whether it's just sitting on the flat boat, sitting in the kayak or standing in the kayak, just looking around at, at what's going on um, and watching the behavior of those fish it's just cool just to see them, just to see them act and, and, you know, how they move around in their environment. 
it's just like a big giant aquarium. Yeah, that's uh, that's super cool. And you know, kind of coming back to to the guide game, you know, what's a day on the water like with Chris Sice? Oh well, we would. Uh, I'd probably reach out. I try to reach out to my clients two days in advance to give them a heads up on what the weather's going to be like, um, what to expect and prepare for in that realm, and also give them a time as to when we're going to meet. If we're just doing a wade fishing trip, it's kind of, you know, I'm not flexible on the, on the time of the day is when they, when they would like to go, unless something in particular is, um, you know, fishing really well at a certain time of the day, which is slightly unusual. Um, but if we're doing the bowfin game, uh, or the fishing on the Chesapeake Bay or fishing somewhere down around North Carolina or something like that, um, it's more than likely going to be a pick and choose the time based on the tides. I would really like to chase uh, fish depending on the tide, um, depending on the situation, but generally we are fishing the last two or three hours of an incoming and the top two or three hours of the falling in salt water. And then I actually tend to fish a low tide uh, for bowfin um, and in some situations, redfish fishing a low tide. Um, it all just depends on exactly where I'm at and what I'm doing. So it just, again, depends on what the tide's doing. Um, and, of course, I try to work with my clients to their schedules because everybody's, uh, you know, all over the place these days, and they might not be able to meet at a specific time. But um, we spend as much time as possibly can out on the water. Uh, you know, it's at least five hours. Often that stretches into six. Um and, and I try my best to get them on the fish as, as quick as possible and teach them something. So, um, you know, I really want my folks, my clients to, to come away having felt like they learned something and had a really good time. And hopefully they do. Yeah, absolutely. And we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording. You know, obviously, you know, COVID has kind of put the kibosh on most of the fly fishing show season. But you know, before I let you hop tonight, do you have any upcoming events? Um, I don't know, maybe you're making more earrings somewhere that you want to share with our listeners uh, that are going to come up maybe in January or February, March? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, COVID's really put a hamper on the, or a damper on the uh, fly fishing shows, which I absolutely love going to those. I mean, I love talking to you there at those and um, trading stories, making new friends, meeting new clients. Um, I love the show. So it's, it's a little discouraging, uh, as with all things that, that COVID has caused to not be able to do those. Um, if the Atlanta one still goes on, which it's apparently still up in the air, I can't believe he still might have it, but he still might have it. Um, I'll be down at that one. Um, I don't have any other events coming up, um, due to COVID. The, the event today was kind of a one-off thing that I got invited to, which was exciting, but just something kind of totally off the wall, and I did it, and I hope I get to do it again. Um, one thing I do like to do is I do like to hop on um, my Instagram Live uh, for my fly fishing account there, not the real world. And I love tying and talking to friends and folks that I don't know or people that I've just met over Instagram in the fly fishing community. Um and tie flies for people. Um, that's probably my favorite part of the show is, is tying redfish flies, tying musket flies, tying bowfin streamers, whatever it might be. And luckily, Instagram um, 
the live uh, version of that allows me to still do that and still have that interaction with people where they can type me a message and ask me, you know, about tying down the, the bucktail, like we talked about earlier, using the specific bed wrap technique, or why do I fish a certain redfish color, a color on a redfish fly in a specific time or whatever, and why I'm doing tying the fly that way. So uh, you can always keep an eye out for that. I generally hop on those on random weekday evening about eight o'clock and I'll tie for two hours. And um, I'm happy to, to give away most of my secrets on there. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, and it's a fun way to teach people, um, from afar when we can't do it because of this stupid pandemic, but it's just the world we live in here at the, at the, uh, present time, unfortunately. So that's probably the only thing I can, uh, I can promise at the moment is, is just doing the Instagram live things. And, and I need to, uh, I need to post some more YouTube videos. So I'll get, I'll get on that, uh, for, for your listeners here, if they want to check out how to tie some of my flies, I'm not able to make the Instagram um, live events. I can, I can show them how to do some stuff uh, on YouTube. Yeah, that'd be really helpful. And, you know, just to kind of help everybody out, why don't you kind of uh, walk through all the places that you live on the internet so people can uh, follow your fishing adventures and maybe book a trip with you? Okay, sure. Um, yeah, the, uh, I guess the most common one that I am on uh, would be not for the real world on Instagram. So that's the at symbol, uh, not with a K, that's spelled K-N-O-T-T-H-E-R-E-E-L-W-O-R-L-D, not the real world, play on words there, um, which is the name of my guide business as well. Um, and so it's just at not the real world is my Instagram account. I'm probably on that the one the most. I answer the most questions on that. My website is www.notherealworld.com. Um, the earring uh, game thing that I just came up with here, the earring business, is uh, called Pretty Fly Designs, which Pretty Fly is the name of my flat boat. Um, and uh, that's Pretty Fly Designs underscore on Instagram. Uh, but I'm on, I'm on Not the Real World the most, and that's probably the easiest uh, route to find me. Um, I have not posted a YouTube video in gosh months so i need to get back on there as well and i think you can search youtube on on how to find me on that as well just through not the real one but i'll have to double check that because i'm no youtube expert but um instagram or my website is probably the easiest way to find me yeah and what i'll do is i'll drop all those in the show notes okay yeah, that'd be great. I really appreciate it. No, absolutely. And Chris, I appreciate you uh, taking a break from tying earrings at a ladies' dress shop to talk to me this evening. <laughs> I I hope uh, I hope I'm the only person you have to say that to. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's crazy, but I'll take it. I made some money, so I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, no. So I really appreciate you making the time to chat. Sure. Marvin, I really appreciate you having me on. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, we got to get on the water sometime. But at the very least, we need to uh, have another beer at the shows here sometime soon, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Take care and have a good evening. All right. You too, Marvin. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review and rating in the podcatcher of your choice. And don't forget to check out the show notes for all the info on Blaine's upcoming tying class. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.